0: Howdy folks, welcome to the grand finale of the Cameratech podcast for 2023. Before we dive into the nostalgia of my top 10 moments from this incredible year, I want to take a moment and express my deepest gratitude to each and every one of you. Your support, whether through listening, watching on YouTube or engaging in our community on social media and supporting us on buymeacoffee.com, has made every episode an absolute joy to create. I truly appreciate the feedback, the messages and thoughts that you've shared. It's what makes this podcast journey so rewarding. And of course, a massive shout out to our phenomenal guests who've graced the show with their wisdom and talent. I've learned a ton from these incredible individuals, and I hope you, our fantastic audience, have found valuable nuggets of information to elevate your own photography skills too. Now, let's dive into the heart of today's episode, my top 10 favorite moments of 2023. But let me tell you, narrowing it down to just 10 was like picking a favorite lens. It's an impossible task. Every guest, every conversation has been a highlight. But these 10 moments hold a special place in my heart. And hey, I want to hear from you too. What were your favorite moments from the Camera Shake podcast this year? Drop your thoughts in the comments or join our lively discussions on Facebook, Instagram or wherever you hang out online. But before we embark on this reflective journey, let's take a quick glance at some of the incredible milestones and achievements we've celebrated in 2023. It's been a year of growth, of learning and, most importantly, sharing the love of photography. So stay tuned as we wrap up 2023 and get ready to capture even more amazing moments in 2024. Thank you for being part of the Camera Shake Podcast family. Let's make this last episode of the year a total blast. And by the way, this is not in any chronological order at all. So the first episode I'm going to start with is a very recent episode with Carl Taylor. Carl is a phenomenal, world-renowned advertising photographer and a true master of lighting. It was super interesting for me to talk to Carl about how he went from photojournalism to becoming known for his incredible skill and attention to detail in studio lighting so here's a bit from episode 184 with Carl taylor how did you learn how to light like what was your pathway into learning how to light because as a photojournalist presumably you're predominantly using available light exactly
1: assuming, obviously I, I had no experience of lighting at all uh, in the early days other than natural light as you say or some small amounts of speed lights and and fill in flash when i worked in a big commercial studio it opened my eyes to how complicated and complex lighting could be in terms of controlling it and the tools that were available to control it such as fresnel lenses parabolic modifiers spotlights honeycomb grids big broad scrims soft banks for car photography all sorts of stuff And I I just was totally unaware of the complexity of lighting and what that brought to an image. I mean, we all knew that nice light, you know, a lovely sunset or lovely dappled light through a tree could make a nice image, but I don't think many photographers, I don't think most photographers in general, I'm talking amateur photographers, are really aware of why it provides, um, you know, a, a great emotional experience to the image. So I became fascinated with light and I suppose in answer to your question as to why I came to be known as a sort of lighting specialist is because I really made an effort to study light beyond the normal hard light, soft light, soft boxes, spotlights. I took it another level and started looking more at the physics and the science behind light and how light works how it interacts how um it bounces it refracts things like inverse square law um everything to do with polarization of light i started really to study more on the science side and also in more recent years more on the neuroscience side of how we react to images based on human um evolutionary, um, uh, well, evolutionary for our own sort of um, protection, if you like. So a lot of the way we perceive images and faces and people and diagonal lines or horizontal lines is all to do with evolutionary process, all to do with um, preservation of ourselves as a species, you know, that whole uh, flight, threat, run thing. And it fascinated me then that on top of all of the science of light, there's this whole science on how humans basically digest images visually. Um, and then I took those two things and combined them, and that's how and why I decide to create my images the way I do today.
0: That's a super interesting angle, actually, um, to look at how we you know how we react on a really on a sort of you know biological level whatever you yeah. want to call it yeah um, exactly to particular to particular uh types of light and the way that light falls you know uh, i'm guessing the impact that shadows have on you know we see them in, in filmmaking very often where light is is used to underline you know almost like psychological undertones you know yeah. in a particular scene and it's it becomes part of the storytelling process
1: Yes, totally, and, and, and you, you mentioned shadows there which is a great point because shadows are used quite significantly in a lot of my work to different types of shadows, different density of shadows, different sharpness of shadows, and each type of shadow has a way of conveying an emotion that can be either ominous or it can be happy or it can be more dynamic. And as you mentioned there, cinematographers, the very best cinematographers, know this inside out. And you take some of the most dramatically well-lit films, um, such as the film Seven with Brad Pitt and uh, Morgan Freeman, you know, the lighting, when you study the lighting throughout that film, it's incredible. And you see how the cinematographer has applied lighting to invoke a feeling, a mood, an emotion that carries you through the film. And um, I've used examples in certain presentations I've given. I mean, even in um, Kubrick's *Space Odyssey* 2001, in the final scenes where you've got the astronaut in the room and everything is lighting up from the floor upwards, which gives a very horror-like feeling because the light is unnatural—it's coming from underneath instead of coming from above—and that's all intentional to to you know invoke those emotions of bizarre strangeness, if you like, to the atmosphere and the scene. And 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 the very best cinematographers know this. And and you know, some photographers know this as well. Many photographers do know this, some that you know I'm friends with and work with. And it's that application of that knowledge into your images in a studio environment that can dramatically enhance or invoke the mood that you're trying to convey. And it's very slight tweaks to the lighting as well. So, for example, in some of my fashion and beauty images, I can have the same model, the same outfit, the same lighting position. And all I have to do is change the density of the light in the shadows via global illumination fill. And I can lighten the mood of the shot without actually changing anything other than the density of the shadows. And it's really interesting at what point the density of the shadows gives an atmosphere of edgy more ominous feel compared to a lighter fresher feel and again what's interesting about that though is not just that it does it but why does it do it and what is it about human perception that makes us perceive it that way so that became something that i started to study uh, several years ago more in depth uh, fellow friend of mine and photographer called Tim Flack, um, incredible animal portrait photographer. Um, He uh, actually put me on to many of of these concepts about 10 years ago uh, and how he uses it in his work. And then, um, you know, I've kind of done further research on that since as well. The next guest
0: absolutely blew my mind. Pete Sousa served as the White House photographer for not one, but two American presidents, Ronald Reagan and Barack Obama. There are many of Pete's images that have been made famous around the world, but there was one I was particularly curious about, and that was Pete's well-known image of Barack Obama in the Situation Room at the White House whilst the Osama bin Laden raid was going on. I wanted to know what it was like being in that room at that time. Have a listen to what Pete had to say. Some of your photographs are so... um significant because they were taken at such significant moments in history i'm thinking the um what was it called the 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 situation room during the bin laden raid for example what was it like being in that room at that time
2: yeah i mean so that was uh uh certainly a historic day and i think that the um it, it would I think the two words to describe uh that that day and that uh, being in that room were uh tension and, uh, and anxiety uh, I mean, we're talking about this what twelve years after the fact um, I think what people lose sight of is that uh the, the, the that raid being successful was not a given they did they did not know for a hundred percent sure that bin Laden was even there you know um it was a risky decision to launch that aid I mean to launch that raid no question um and um a lot of things can go wrong something did go wrong where a helicopter ended up almost. Essentially, crash landing, and yet they they had prepared for every scenario. That even though that helicopter bit the dust, nobody died. You know, no member of that team was injured. Um, but you know, it was a risky, risky uh, raid, and so I think that um, you could you could feel that uh, as all as he and his aides watched, you know, this whole raid unfold, just not knowing what was going to happen. And I also, when I give my uh, public presentations and I show that photo, I also mention that, you know, all, all the people in that room are used to being decision makers. Um, uh, and they had, you know, he had made his decision But now, you know, they—they were there was nothing they could do in the moment to affect the outcome. And so that's got to be a very unsettling feeling to be sitting there watching this raid take place and not knowing whether it was going to be successful or not. So that gives you a little bit of background of what the feeling was like, I think. So at that moment when you were in that room and everything
0: was happening, I'm guessing they were probably watching screens of what was going on at the time. Yeah. Was, it, was it difficult to concentrate on your job at that time? I mean, how did you keep it together at that point when all of that's going on behind you
2: and, and that atmosphere is is happening in that room? Um, it, I think to keep in mind, this, this was May 2011, so I'd already been in the job for two and a half years. I'd been in the situation room like, so many times for so many meetings. And obviously, the, the, what was taking place was much different than, you know, previous meetings in that room. Um, but there was a fam- familiarity in being in very tight, tense situations. Um, logistically, uh, because they had moved into this small conference room, um, the challenge for me was I couldn't really move around. Like usually I was able to move around different parts of the room, but people were just kind of jammed in there. You know, and that was the, was
0: the first thing I thought when I saw that picture, I remember seeing that picture back in the day and I'm thinking like, where is the photographer? Like how, how do you fit in this room?
2: <laughs> yeah. I mean, I literally had, uh, my, my rear end was, uh, Touching a a laser printer in the corner of the room, I couldn't go back any further. I had somebody touching my shoulder, standing, and they were. I was touching shoulders with them to my right. There was a guy sitting right in front of me, like I I could touch his chair. Uh, Like I had nowhere to go, so I was kind of stuck in this this spot. Um. Which in some ways made it easier to, to just blend into the scene, you know, that I wasn't moving around a lot. Obviously, I would have liked to have had different angles, but it just was not possible. So, and I was very selective and in, in, uh, photographing um, so that I, you know, this is, this is before mirrorless cameras were really uh, any good. And so I was using a DSLR on, you know, a quiet mode, but still. I was trying to be extra quiet because the, you know, most of the time nobody was talking and I didn't want to like interrupt, you know, the flow of, of the, you know, just the mood of what was taking place. So I was very selective on when I actually, um, clicked the shutter and, um, the, the, the rate itself lasted for like, I think 40 minutes. So we were in that little conference room for 40 minutes and i think i only shot like 100 pictures which is not a lot you know in 40 minutes um so i was being very selective on when i was uh, clicking the shutter um just to just to be as unobtrusive as possible
0: wasn't that incredible next up is episode 140 with none other than tour photographer and overall photography encyclopedia david bergman david's 10-year tenure Ten-year tenure? Ten-year... Tenure. <laughs> Who writes these scripts? <laughs> David's ten-year tenure... I can't pronounce this word. That's... David's ten-year stint with Bon Jovi has produced some of the most recognizable rock and roll imagery there is, and his video series, Ask David Bergman on Adorama TV is one of the most watched on YouTube. I was lucky enough to have David on the show during 2023 and eventually spend a week with him in the Lofoten Islands shooting the Northern Knights, but more about that in a little while. Have a listen to this. He is the ultimate Adorama TV Jedi Master and the only person who is allowed to shoot John Bon Jovi's kids. Give it up for Mr. David Berkman. David, man, how are you?
3: <laughs> hey Kirsten, great. Uh thanks for having me here. I appreciate it. Fantastic. So what is the what is the deal with John Bon Jovi's kids? Uh, you know, I don't know that I'm the <laughs> only person, but uh he was, you know, I I was the band's tour photographer for about almost 10 years. And he's very protective of his family. He generally especially when they were young you know underage uh, children he he was pretty good about keeping them out of the spotlight considering what a big superstar he is and how well he's known around the world so but as his photographer as his tour photographer I spent so much time with him and his family that he actually brought me out quite a few times on family vacations to uh, to document uh you know his family uh, times away from the uh, away from the spotlight so that was kind of fun and a uh, really nice guy and great family is that, is that true that you were one of only three people who were allowed to enter his
0: dressing room unannounced or something like that?
3: So he told me once when I had I had just started working for him, uh, maybe I was a year in, and and one time and I was being, you know, this job, when you're a tour photographer, I would say half of it is about being a good photographer. Of course, you have to be a good photographer. The other half is to know when to be in the room and when not to be in the room, right? There's very, uh, you know, celebrities and even just if you work whoever you work with, you got to know when to be there, when to push and when to just excuse yourself. So uh, there was one time early on when I, I wasn't quite sure where that line was with him and I was being very respectful and I, I had to do something. I needed him to sign a guitar or something. I needed a picture of him signing something and I sat outside the dressing room waiting for him after the show and he was in there for quite a while. It was maybe about an hour and uh, but I just sat out there waited. That was my job and, and when he came out, he was like, you, you've been out there the whole time and he said, look, and he told me that day. He said, "There's three people who can come in my dressing room unannounced, and you are one of them." So, uh, you know, I don't know if that's, that 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 still holds up today, but uh, at the time, uh, that was the, that was the number. So that was quite, you know. He was very cool about that. He understood how this works. And uh, but even so, I, that doesn't mean I pushed it. Right? I went in when I had to. You know, I'm not going in and sitting down and being like, "Hey, John, what's going on? What you know? What'd you have for lunch?" Right? you go in, you do your job and uh, and let him do his job and, and be on your way. It's It must be,
0: I mean, especially when you're on tour with somebody for, for such a, a length of time, which I'm guessing, you know, pontovichus tours would have been going on for like the best part of a year. I mean, se- several months, I guess, right?
3: For sure. For sure. Yeah, 2013 was the biggest one I did. We did 102 shows on six continents that year.
0: Wow. Yeah. It, it, it must be, I mean, it really, I think it must come down to people skills ultimately because I, I know, you know I'm, I'm a musician in the former life. I was a, Performing musician, and I yeah. know how difficult it is when you're on tour and you're literally, you know, you're with the same people every day. It's
3: it's yeah. not necessarily it what's easy in the in the touring industry. The expression is you have got to be a good hang, right? You got to know how to hang out. If no, if you don't get along with people, if people don't like you, you know, we live on tour buses together. We're on plane all the time. We're, we're we work together and we live together for the most part. If people don't like you, they're kicking you off, right? You're not going to make it very far in this business. So you got to be a good hang.
0: Yeah, you got to be a real people person. I think you know that's absolutely that's definitely. Um, so, how did you how did you get to be um, on tour with with Bon Jovi?
3: Yeah, it's funny because people always want a good story like John saw my pictures in Sports Illustrated and plucked me out of oblivion. You know, and it really doesn't happen like that. I'm I'm a hustler. I'm always hustling. Every, anybody who's made it as a freelance photographer, really in any creative field, you're always hustling. I'm still hustling at this point in my career. So. I'm constantly meeting people. I'm constantly coming up with business ideas. I'm constantly finding different ways to get to do the kind of work that I do. And Bon Jovi was just kind of that story. It's I, I had done a lot in my career up to that point, you know, and I was always meeting people. And I wanted to tour with, I had done other tours. I spent some time with Naked Ladies and um, a few other, you know, big arena artists. But I wanted to do one of those big stadium bands, one of the giant, you know, well-known, uh, playing around the world at stadiums. Uh, everywhere, and so I just tried to pitch everybody I could. And you can't like look up on Google how do I contact Bon Jovi's manager? There's there's no way to do it. So it's just in the industry, and I would meet somebody randomly who's like, oh, my lawyer's brother's cousin's son works for Bon Jovi's house cleaner, you know, and um, whatever it was, anything I could get to the band, anything I get, and them, and every other band that I could, you know, possibly get something to. And over the years, eventually. I wound up getting a meeting with Bon Jovi's management, and that night I was shooting. So it's just you know you just never know where it's going to come from, but you just never stop working for it, and and eventually you know you you'll never hear about all the ones I didn't get, <laughs> right? I'm of only gonna you're only going to hear about the ones I did, and so uh, you know it's like I said, it's not just like oh I just called John Bon Jovi and he brought me out. It doesn't it doesn't work that way. Mm-hmm. I, mean, I know your background is in is in music really because you're a
0: drummer. percussionist yeah yeah actually
3: i i don't play actively anymore but i'll tell you a quick funny story i was uh doing in the 90s i I worked at the miami herald i was a staff photographer at the newspaper i was a photojournalist, and i had to do a portrait uh, or picture session with arturo sandoval who's a famous jazz trumpet player and i was i wasn't intimidated but i was i have such respect for him and he's such a well-known person in that world and i certainly knew who he was and we had some time to kill before I had done my thing and the writer, we're waiting on the writer. And I remember saying to him like, oh, I went to Berkeley. I used to be a musician. And he goes, uh-uh, always a musician. I was like, oh, you're right, you're right. So even though I don't actively play, I am still a musician, but I, I don't actively play drums anymore. It's been a yeah. while since I've actually sat down at a drum kit, but it is my background for sure. Yeah, It's, it's amazing, you know.
0: Like, out of all the, the guests that we've had on the show, you know, over the last uh, few years, it's amazing how many people are also musicians <laughs> or have a musical background. You know, I'm always thinking, yeah. like, oh, mo- one day we should put together like a camera shake band.
3: Uh, the camera <laughs> shake band. You know what's funny? I've noticed that too, in that I, it must be something about that part of the brain. I know a disproportionate number of photographers who specifically played drums. I don't know why that is. You know musicians a lot of musicians but more drummers than anything else not a lot of bass players not a lot of singers a lot of drummers so I don't know maybe a neurologist can tell us why that is but it, it <laughs> I've seen a, I've seen it have seen a correlation there it's it's funny because I've
0: had um I've had a message only last week from one of our listeners in uh in Sweden and I've forgotten the the name of the town uh but I'm sure he'll be in touch to remind me um but he's also a drummer so it's okay. you, you might be you might be onto something there. There's a disproportionate yeah. amount of drummers listening to the show. Maybe I don't know. I know quite a few. Yeah, <laughs> so just, my brain was just rattling through a whole bunch of drama jokes, and probably I'm not going to go there <laughs> <Not laughs> today. <laughs> no. Hey, let me just jump in real quick to tell you about the amazing sponsor of this episode, Platypod. Platypod offers innovative camera support systems designed to unleash your creativity with their stable, versatile, and portable solutions. You can capture stunning shots like never before. And I'm not just saying that. As the host of the Camera Shake podcast, I can personally vouch for Platypo's incredible products. They've become an integral part of the show. In fact, I'm surrounded by various Platypus products holding up lights, cameras, microphones, and so on. It's really helped to transform the way I make the show and the way I shoot at home, in the studio, and on location. But don't just take my word for it. Explore Platapod's website at www.platapod.com to discover their range of products, including the Platapod Extreme, Platterball tripod heads, and the brand new handle, of course. Make sure to follow Platapod on Instagram and Facebook at Platapod Tripods for exclusive updates, tips, and giveaways. By choosing Platapod, you're not only investing in your photography, but you're also supporting the Camera Shake Photography Podcast. Thanks again to Platapod, our amazing sponsor. Platterpart where innovation never sleeps. <laughs> now, this next episode is very special to me because eventually, in late September 2023, I managed to meet up with my friend Dave Williams in the Lofoten Islands in northern Norway to shoot the northern lights and create incredible landscape photography as well as phenomenal portrait imagery with our real-life Viking models in what is most definitely the most breathtaking landscape on the planet. The workshop we taught out there in Arctic Norway was without a shadow of a doubt absolute highlight of the past year so check this out
4: hey i am bob pierce i came from memphis tennessee uh i typically do a lot of real estate architecture photography and then some portraits and headshots and i heard about it from this guy over here david bergman uh and he called my parole officer and they worked it out and said it was
3: it was okay if i left the country so here i am Oh boy, it's going to be that kind of podcast. Um, yeah, I'm David Bergman, I'm a Canon Explorer of Light, and I'm a tour photographer, also a photo educator myself, and I couldn't be happier to be here. I I heard about this on Kirsten's uh, podcast, I was actually on the camera shake, I don't know what number that was.
0: Yes, uh, roll back, if you're on YouTube, if you're listening on YouTube, well, if you're listening to the audio version, of course, check it out, but if you are watching on YouTube, then just go into the playlist and, and check out that interview with David Bergman um, a few months ago first class anyway but do that after you've finished watching this episode because we're not finished
3: yeah so i was a guest on on the podcast and then a few episodes later dave williams was on and i saw that he was hosting this workshop and i have never i, I teach a lot of workshops myself i've never seen the northern lights and i've always wanted to photograph the northern lights and see it and we're up here in the north of the arctic circle and i thought what a great opportunity to come hang with some friends and make some pictures and see the northern lights and that's what it's been so it's been awesome so far and you mentioned you've never seen the northern lights before this.
0: And I think that's probably true for most of us except for Dave of course. Um but am I right in saying that none of us including myself had ever seen the northern lights before is that right? Yeah.
3: Yeah, I live in I live in New York City and so I see you tall see buildings, we can barely see the sky, yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So there's no opportunity to see the northern lights. I do travel around the world a lot, but it's rare that I have an opportunity to spend cuz the northern lights you know, as I learned this week, you know, you don't see them every night, right? The weather is, it's very weather dependent. It doesn't happen every night. So uh, so there were, you just don't, I just have never had the opportunity to spend a week chasing the light and chasing the weather to uh, try to get some pictures. So we've
0: all come here to chase the Northern Lights and we're going to just hear from, from Dave Williams uh, for a second, uh, who's going to explain to us why this is the perfect spot on the planet, the best spot on
5: the planet to come and see the Northern Lights. So why is that? There's a couple of reasons and so to briefly touch on all of them the weather here we've, we've not had the best weather this week we have been chasing but the weather here generally is pretty good because the sea carries the Gulf Stream that warms things up and it tends to give us calmer better weather and then in the winter when the weather comes from the north and because it's so cold we tend to have clearer skies um, but then when, when you think about how the northern lights work and the fact that the northern lights are essentially electric they're getting attracted to the granite in the mountains. And this is just one huge chunk of granite. So that's great. We're at the center of the auroral oval here in lofoten And um, we have the longest season. So because of where we are, we're in the Arctic Circle, but not too deep into it. We're about 100 miles into it. Um, it means we've got the longest season from... I started shooting this year on the 18th of August. So it was still summer. As soon as you can see a star in the sky, you can see the northern lights. And then I'm expecting that we're going to go through till mid- mid-April, mid maybe a tad beyond mid-April. So there's lots of reasons why this place is great for that. But then when there are no northern lights, um, when you need to occupy yourselves in the daytime, it's absolutely stunning out there. Even right here where we are, at this fishing village, at Finnoia. It's just beautiful. It's, it's without, without a doubt one of the most stunning places on
0: Earth. And of course, it's also the birthplace of the Viking culture or civilization, and that's exactly why we have our two Viking models with with us every day. So not only have we been chasing the the Northern Lights, but we've also done a lot of portrait photography, we've shot Vikings in their natural habitat, Um, and it it doesn't take a lot of imagination when you see that Mm. in the landscape, it really doesn't take a lot of imagination to to really understand what that must have been like a thousand years ago yeah. in this area, it's still that rough, that rugged it, is the word. Yeah, it yeah, exactly. was rugged. Exactly. It's it's just such a stunning, stunning landscape. And of course, that's the other thing that we've been doing. We've been we've been doing portrait photography. Uh, we've learned how to shoot the Northern Lights, and we've also uh, gotten into landscape photography. For example, my mind is still blown from that. But at some point during twenty twenty three it occurred to me that we had never had a toy photographer on the show. And there were two toy photographers in particular whose work kept popping up. And I remember thinking, wow, this is incredible. How do they do that? So I decided to invite both Dave De Bearmaker and Jesse Fireisen Eisen on the show and chat with them about the incredible imagery they create. So here's a bit from episode 151 with Dave De Bearmaker, where he tells me how he got into making toys look like imagery straight out of a hollywood movie you know you're photographing the the toys or the action figures let's say but then you're also building the sets like you're literally building the sets but then you're even you're 3d printing the actual figures it's just uh, the amount of effort and, and attention to detail that goes into your work is just absolutely incredible
6: yeah, the uh, I mean, it started off. I was just taking figures. I started with Lego minifigures, the small little things, um, and I was just throwing them on my uh, my desktop um, or my desk and just shooting them. And I didn't really worry about the background or anything like that. But over time, um, I've tried to add more of myself into my work and not just have. I used to just kind of go, "This is the toy. It's what it is. I'm going to use it." But I've been trying to expand uh, what I put into it, and over time. It's gone from just using the toys to going online and buying unique uh, accessories to go with it to make my scenes to, um, that's really expensive. Um, if you ever wanna spend a whole lot of money, look at the accessory market for uh, uh, toys cause you will drop a whole lot of money on uh, things really, really quickly. So I started using, um, actually my we have, work, or have a maker space. So I started learning how to do some stuff there, making some props. Um, like, the first thing I made was a, a laser-printed uh, sewer grate that I used for a Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. So was, the turtle was poking his head out of the sewer grate. Um, so that was the first thing I made that was really a prop. Um, and then from there, kind of snowballed. Um, really kind of after the, uh, the COVID lockdown um, is when I really kind of got into making my own stuff, because I had time, um, and I just started making things and learning how to do it and realize it's not that difficult in the grand scheme of things. Uh, I started out thinking, I don't have the skill for this because I don't, like I can't draw with beans um, and I can't cut a straight line and a piece of lumber to save my life. So I was living in the, under the impression that I can't do the physical things. I'll stick to the pre-made stuff and then fix it in Photoshop because I'm good at Photoshop. Uh, but I-, I realized that it's not that difficult to get your work to like, 80% looking good in real life, and that's enough for the camera. The, the camera actually provides a lot of grace when it comes to those types of things. So I realized that was good enough to kind of make it look decent, and then in, once I figured that out, I just kind of snowballed and now I kind of make everything from scratch. At so least you... some stuff from scratch.
0: So did you have to learn all those skills, like the model building skills and and the, like, uh, the, I mean, you've just, you know, I say you, you 3D, three sorry, I said to you 3D print your models, but then you also hand paint them and they look incredible. Yeah,
6: yeah um, some of that's thanks to uh, Photoshop and thanks to um, the camera, um, but uh, yeah, uh, all of that stuff I had to learn and really I've only been painting the minis for maybe the last year or so um just because i wanted to i just kind of got to the point where i wanted to create those figures that i couldn't buy on the the shelf um so yeah i started painting and and if when you look at and I, i did it mainly by watching youtube tutorials um youtube is a gold mine for this stuff um pretty much anything diorama related there's a youtube thing somewhere that i use to learn it uh but it's actually not that difficult um and I, I don't say that as in like, you know, well, oh, Dave knows what he's doing, but it's really not that difficult. Um, but I think what, the, what kind of takes it from meh to okay or impressive looking, I guess you will, um, is that um, you have to kind of layer on details. So uh, you, you print off the figure, then it's just a great thing. You put on the base coat of okay. His pants are going to be blue, and his shirt's going to be red, and his face is whatever skin color is, the character is. But then you have to take it another step, and then paint in some other details to bring out uh, some of the uh, the details and and, and uh, accentuate the the shadow areas by using like a technique called washes, which is like a really light coat of paint that just kind of settles into the dark areas and kind of adds a tone. Then you do dry brushing, which is basically taking a brush that almost has no paint on it and just lightly brushing it over the figure, and that gets the paint on the highlight. So if you use white on that, then it kind of brings out the details like in the cloth and stuff, uh, which kind of makes the fear pop and it doesn't look so much painted as it does more realistic. And then when you add the camera lights into it, it kind of brings out all those details.
0: So that was pretty crazy. But then I had an opportunity to speak to Jesse about how he created an amazing image of an Imperial Star Destroyer in space. I love behind the scenes footage. And hearing firsthand how he built, shot, and lit that model was a real eye-opener. So how
7: the heck did you make <laughs> that image? There so yeah, there's actually a lot, kind of a lot going on here. Um uh, so, so I guess to kick it right off, so it's it's two completely different scale models. The the super star destroyer on in the background is about a two-foot it's actually a game piece. There's there's a tabletop Star Wars game. I think it's called Star Wars Armada. I think, um, and this is about a two foot game piece that goes on your table and you can flash. I've I've never played the game, but they make great little models. I've got a couple of them now for different shoots. So, so so that's the model. Um, now to give it a sense of scale, I shot a I did I I focus stacked the image of the Star Destroyer because I couldn't get it all in focus in one shot. Um, so that that was a tip. That was the tip I learned a while ago. I think once again from an ILM something or other, like a behind-the-scenes book or something, where to to give something a sense of scale, you kind of want it all in focus. You know, if if you were to walk up to a to a cruise ship or something from the dock and you took a picture of it, chances are the front of it's going to be in focus, the back of it's going to be in focus. Um, it just gives it that grand grandeur of scale. Um, where if you were to use a a, a wide open aperture like f four f two point eight or whatever you know you you'd just get maybe the logo in in focus or something. So in this case I um, I was probably shooting at f eleven f sixteen somewhere in there I don't recall offhand. Did a sequence of I think maybe twenty shots front to back and then stacked them in Photoshop so that gave me the nice clear the thing is crisp from the front crisp to the back because I think in the lore this thing is supposed to be it's it's like the city of Manhattan or something it's a couple miles long it's supposed to be. So, so that's how we did the two-foot model. The Imperial uh, shuttle in the foreground there is a Hot Wheels toy. Uh, I think I have somewhere in the room, yeah, which is maybe four inches tall or something. Um, so when I shot the Star Destroyer, I removed that, put the Imperial shuttle in similar position so it had the same single light source, uh, shot a couple shots of that, composite that together. Oh, another key on the lighting. For this space lighting, I usually use... For, for most of my shots i usually use softboxes. I, I shoot a lot of off-camera flash i used to use constant lighting LED lights um i really like those they make a lot of great RGB ones now where you can pick any color and you know you can see instantly what you get what you see is what you get kind of thing when you're shooting but for some reason i'm just i've sort of fallen in love with using flash i don't know what it is i now that i' finally it was intimidating at first but now that i finally learned it i i love using it um so
0: did you did you stop with? um constant lighting
7: and then you went on on to flash as far as toy photography right you know what i i kind of go back and forth now that i think about it i started with flash because i was doing product photography or experimenting with it and then i started getting into uh led lights like like loom cubes and, and godox led panels and things like that and now i've kind of come full circle back to flash um oh so where i was going with this uh usually when i use flash i use like nice soft boxes to get nice big soft boxes to get nice soft light um and things like that for this i went the opposite this i believe was a bare bulb because if you think about it in space your light source is just the stars there's no, really no diffusion so that gives you kind of a little bit more of a harsh light which kind of creates a lot of those hard shadows that you see and it just it helps sell the illusion of of that space kind of shot
0: very very typical actually for for the star wars movie or the Star Wars movies, and the way spaceships are lit in space is very hard light. And it's also very yep. dramatic when they come out of shadow, for example, you know, and you've got this hard shadow edge and, and, and you it know, kind the of
7: space out of the shadow or something. Yeah, yeah, and it
0: emerges. Exactly. Like I remember this yep. scene with the Death Star where the Death Star just comes through and you just go, what the heck? You know, yeah. you can get that. Yep. You know, that, yeah,
7: Fantastic. yeah. Exactly. Um, so, yeah, so we talked about the lighting uh, and the Imperial Shuttle. Yeah, so the Imperial Shuttle. Um, basically just removed the Star Destroyer out of the scene, dropped in the Imperial Shuttle, took some shots of that. And then then it was just a matter of compositing everything in in Photoshop. Uh, so the star field in the background, I've always struggled with getting a good star field that, that not only I like, but kind of looks authentic to the originals. Um, I I Like I mentioned before, I used to dabble in astrophotography. So I have, I, I mean, I have a library of, star fields that i've shot from evenings of trying to shoot meteor showers and in northern lights and things like that and those are great but they don't look like the source material like star wars source material if you go back and look at that stuff their star fields are very very pinpoint black and white there's really no color there's no there's not a whole lot of patterns to the stars um so in, in this case i actually ended up uh like i mentioned i'm also a video person um so i used after effects used the particle generator in after effects kind of played with it and finally got to a randomized starfield that i really like so i I made a couple different versions of it dropped them into my my libraries my sky libraries and that's what i used for the background there um now as far as the engine lights and the the sort of off-camera light lens flare that you see there the engine lights were created in photoshop i oftentimes just make simple shapes with the pen tool kind of outline the engine and then i light it up with various um outer glows and drop shadows actually it sounds counterintuitive but if you use layer styles um, you can use the outer glow but you can also use drop shadows instead of a dark color give it a light color play with the um the different overlay styles and then for whatever reason in photoshop you can add multiple instances of a drop shadow but not an outer glow i don't know why that is but I was playing with it one day and it's like, oh, there's a little plus button. You can continually add them. So if you stack a couple drop shadows on top of each other that are lighter in color, it tends to make a pretty good outer glow. So uh, so that's how we glow. That's how we made the engines glow. And then the lens flares you see, um, I use a plugin called Boris Effects Optics. Boris Effects is a special effects company and video uh, software company. And they recently, a year or two ago, released a product for photographers called Optics. So it's a lot of their visual, a lot of their video uh, special effects type plugins and effects now in a piece of software for us photographers. And it's it's super great. I really love it. I use it quite a bit. Um, it has its own particle generator and like digital gobos and lens flares and light leaks and all sorts of fun effects. So So that's what's going on. That's how I generate the lens flares there.
0: In this next clip, I'm chatting with another phenomenal guest of 2023, Tim Wallace. Tim is one of the leading car photographers in the world, and this was a fantastic opportunity to catch up with him and talk to him about how he does what he does. So what would be your sort of your, your top tip for anybody who wanted to get into photographing cars or planes or helicopters or any, any moving vehicle? Uh, what would be sort of your number one tip to start out with?
8: If you're going to clear this and live it, if you want to make money from it and earn a living from it, you need to think about what you're going to shoot and why you're going to shoot that. I I did prestige cars. So I, you'll never find a picture of mine of a Renault Scenic or whatever, or Ford. I do Aston Martin's, I do McLaren's and it's not because it's, Ooh, it's Aston Martin and McLaren, how posh. It's the fact that their budgets are bigger. The style of images they need suits my style of shooting. Most of my car work is coming out of the darkness. It's a bit aggressive. It's very, it's very sculptured light. You're not going to get an advert for a Ford Focus that's shot that way. That's going to be by a beach with somebody with a set. That's not me. That's not my style. So you've got to. My top tip is to shoot what you enjoy shooting that you have a passion for because that will show in your work. But it's got to have an end purpose. So what's the end purpose? He's going to buy this. It is your style of shooting right for the type of client that you're going for. Yes, yeah, so I think a
0: funny thing. Uh, so during the pandemic, I shot, I, you know, like I said, I shot a few cars. And um, and I, had, I have a friend who owns a Ferrari. And so yeah. I was uh, I was shooting the Ferrari quite a lot. And then, of course, he went to Ferrari events and stuff. So I, I shot a lot of Ferraris, which was great. And uh, it was super good fun and a, and a real experience. Um, and then, very weirdly, I got a phone call from somebody who'd seen the imagery and asked. They uh, own a the cleaning company, and they've just bought this two hundred thousand pound street sweep, like road sweeper, mobile yeah, yeah. thing. <laughs> that that I mean, he wanted shooting in exactly the same way. I'm like, okay, well, that's different, but it's probably the best photograph of a of a road sweeper ever created.
8: <laughs> well, I mean. So yeah, I mean, like I say, I do McLarens and stuff like that and, and I've done work with Ferrari and everything else yeah. but then I've shot I shoot bin lorries so Daddy Seagull yeah. refuge lorries, bin lorries, whatever you want to call them, and I shoot the brochure work for them and people would be like are oh, you shooting a refuge lorry? That's not very interesting, but I love it it's great, because they're yeah. quite hard to shoot do you know exactly. what I mean? Exactly and then, So my truck work is, is probably one of some of the most enjoyable stuff I do. It's big, and it's interesting that we, if we were doing a brochure for like, I don't know, say there's a new type of truck out that Mercedes have made or something like that, historically, we would take that in studio. But when we were in lockdown, the studios were closed. Uh-huh. Yeah. And suddenly, we had a nightmare because we couldn't do location work. Because some of the locations that we were trying to use, they were like, no, you can't do that. You can't have people around and everything else. The studios were closed. Um, and a lot of the manufacturers were sending factory workers home. So the factories were half empty. So I thought, right, okay, well, I need to carry on working. So I had a bit of uh, work I was doing for a, um, a Dutch company called Turbo that make different trucks and vehicles and everything, like park tractors and all this sort of stuff. And they needed some stuff doing. And I said, Well, look, is the factory empty? And they're like, Well, yeah, the, the West End side of the factory is just completely empty because all those guys are off at the moment. I'm like, Right, we'll do it in the factory. So I ended up, for the first time, lighting big vehicles, not with continuous light, but with strong on the end of a stick, and then compositing those images together to make it, to, to blend it all through and everything. And then taking it out of the factory background and put it into what looked like a studio background. And the first couple of attempts I did at this, it was just, that was horrendous. You know, but like anything, you work at it, you work at it, you work at it. It's, it's your living, it's your job, so you've got to do it. Um, and I, I perfected it. And sometimes now it's like one of my USPs and the fact that some of my clients know that if they've got a really big vehicle, but logistically they can't get it into studio, that technically speaking, we could do it where it is, you know? It's, it's tough going, but it's one of those things in business that you've just got to give what a client needs, really. And then, of course, there was episode 146 with Lisa Carney, one of the
0: most well-known movie poster retouchers and Photoshop educators out there. I talked to Lisa about some of her incredible work, and it was just interesting to me to hear her take on how AI might affect the retouching world in the future. Check this out. Talk about Photoshop, do you think, you know, with all the AI developments and stuff and the things that are happening, even, even as part of Photoshop um, mm-hmm. now, do you think that's another sort of groundbreaking change uh, when it comes to just Photoshop, but also retouching in general?
9: Yeah, yes and no. So it depends on what level you play. I think for your, your average consumer and someone who's maybe at a, I don't want to sound snobby, but at a base level... 100%. The thing is for, for pro-level work and the type of work you have to do, I do, you have to be able to go backwards or change it. And when you rely too much on AI, what happens is your chops get really crappy. And then you get a job where someone's turned profile or something else and the AI, will, AI won't do it. How you fix it? Do, do you understand what I'm saying? So yeah, I think absolutely. the AI is, while it's interesting and cool, it's also a little dangerous.
0: It's definitely, I, I think... think- I think it's very useful um for from a portrait photography point of view especially when you're doing like commercial things like you know, headshots for example and you yeah. have like a, you know a huge turnaround in in not a lot yes. of time. Yes at, at that point it's super helpful because it just cut you you know it just cut your 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 work in half. Well you don't Absolutely. even mess in it. But I totally agree with you when you're doing anything that's more intricate um then then as you said you haven't got the option to Dive into certain specific details yeah. of it, or roll it back, or yeah. you know, and
9: that's yeah. where it becomes tricky, and it also, I think becomes tricky in terms of practice. So so hear me out. So yeah, I get I get showing volume stuff, oh my God, hundred percent. But then what happens when you lose your practice for it because you haven't done it, and then you get some jobs where you have to do it, and the clock is ticking, and the clients want their stuff, but you don't remember how to do it. Or you've lost that. you know what I mean that that yeah. your jobs. I have no other word for it other than tops. and Oh, what do you do then? So it's, it's a it's a slippery slope. That's yeah. all.
0: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Because I find that you know when um when I when I spend a lot of time doing other things other than headshots, and then I come back to it, it's it just takes me a minute or two, you know, to just yeah to just get back into it. And especially yeah. when I do things that um you know I just have to do it on one particular job, and I don't usually use that particular mm-hmm. technique or something. Then you know, you know, when six months later I have to do a similar thing, I really have to go back to like how how did I do yeah. that? Like how did that work? How
9: do I fix that? Yeah. yeah.
0: Exactly, but you have you have retouched some of the most famous and most well-known movie posters there are in the industry. Um, you know, I mean, everything from you know from CSI, How to Train Your Dragon, my daughter's oh, big so much favorite. fun working
9: on that. Yeah. so much fun.
0: And uh, and the boys. I mean, my my wife and I are totally addicted to the boys. So that is a fantastic poster. Um, you know, everything from a
9: campaign. Like, yeah,
0: yeah. and uh, Your Honor. What an image. Uh, that's-
9: I have to say, I was really, that's a, a the your, your Honor series. There's actually two in that series. Yeah. And I was so thrilled that Showtime came to me because that was one of the few times in in kind of modern recollection where it was such a challenging job because those were full daylight shots. Right. Full daylight, especially as a profile one where he's in shadow. And it was shot with blown out, you know, it was a unit shot, basically. Uh, meaning they shot it on set, and I was like, oh, I actually get to work for this one.
0: Yeah.
9: Do you know what I mean? Like, it was a yeah. challenge. Yeah, absolutely. Which I really, really appreciated doing.
0: I I mean, the results are amazing, you know. It's, oh, thank you. It's one of those thank images you. that really sticks out immediately. I mean, here, over here in the UK, it's on Paramount, and I guess it's on mm-hmm. Showtime. Yeah, too. Yeah. too. And uh, as soon as it comes up, the, the shot comes up, and everybody notices it. Like, everybody's noticing it. Um, like, even my, my 17-year-old, actually, no, 19, oops, 19-year-old daughter now.
9: They can go <laughs> fast yes. I know right <laughs> um yeah
0: even she she was talking about it you know it's it's just it's just such a striking black and white shot yeah. you know the
9: creative director and the photographer did a really great job. I have to say the thing is but especially I think the one you're referring to is a straight on angle one yeah. it's you don't you have no clue uh, folks don't have any clue what goes into that. that beard has probably 20 layers of hair painted over it <laughs> it's been redone. It's Uh, amazing. And and the hair, the hair is completely redone. No one would know, hopefully. If I do my job right, they don't know. Yeah, but that's that's the
0: key, isn't it? I mean, the better you do your work, the less anybody notices.
9: 100%, that's totally accurate, yeah.
0: That's incredible. Yeah,
9: I've been been really lucky in my career to get to work on some pretty amazing and fun projects. In the next
0: episode, I had a chance to get together with Sweden-based portrait and headshot photographer Sean Luthwaite again. Sean's style is very personal. And in this conversation, we explored the importance of using a single light source for portrait photography. I also had an opportunity to meet up with Sean later on in the summer during a trip to Stockholm. Have a listen to this. For anybody who is interested in portrait photography or, or would like to get into portrait photography, uh, what is the the first, number one,
4: most important thing you'd, you'd, th- you'd say they'd have to master? I think... Um... Personally, for myself, looking back on my progression, uh, and I sort of, you know, after watching YouTube tutorials from Peter Hurley, uh, Jeff Rojas, etc., I started to focus on using one light, and I still use one light. So use one light and use it very well. You can use either either one light to get very dramatic light, and if it's from one side. Uh, or if it's straight on, then you get a bit more of a flat light. But since I like to have a quite a cinematic feel to my portraits for the actors, I want their faces to have a bit of a, um, a 3D saw on the screen. So uh, lights and shadows, for me, create that perfect combination. Uh, and the, the way I say to all of the students in here is, so listen, I use one light because when you go outside on a sunny day, there's one light in the sky. People don't walk around with two light sources on their face and a reflector under the, the face. So, But for me, it's very important to get people to look exactly as they do if it was in a just in a regular situation. I, I know that some of the American portraits work very well in the States, but over here in Europe, uh, in Sweden, in the UK, uh, they can come across very... Um, too well lit there's, there's no shape to the face it's, there's there's the shape and contours but it's just a bit I don't know I wouldn't want to say fake looking light the light's very good but it's just a bit you see that type of shot all the time uh, so I want my headshots to stand out for use and just the one light and uh, using it hopefully very well I mean from what I've heard from people that I've shot there they're getting headhunted from stage pool, headhunted to the States and stuff like that for two movies. So it's, yeah, fine one light source. My first light source was an a 80 centimeter shoot through umbrella, uh, a light stand that was barely hold the light up. And it was just a, uh, one of those squiggly type daylight bulbs that you get. And it, it was there was it wasn't enough light to go through the shoot through, so the light had to be really close to the person's face. Uh, it worked for a certain amount of time, but then you have to progress. You know whether it's through strobe. I'm continually using now uh, LED lamps. I don't use any strobe at all because the the flash affects the pupil of the eye. It dilates the eye. So people have got colored eyes I want their eyes to show out by not the big black pl- uh, pupils so so yeah, I'm using one light source and using it well
0: there's, there's two interesting things uh, in what you just said well it's many interesting things, but it's two things I want to pick out on um, one is first of all, using one light or starting with one light is is always a great idea because one of the things I think that can happen if you, you know if you watch lots of YouTube tutorials and yeah. you, know, you, you he watch a video about like three point lighting and you know fill yeah. light and hair lights and you know everything else. It's it's easy to get overwhelmed with that and Very to much confuse so. you know to get confused with that. Um, yeah. And yeah. I see that actually I see that I've only recently uh, noticed that in a in a group. Um, um uh, in, in a, it was a like a camera club related group and people were trying to teach themselves how to use studio lighting. And the yeah. thing there was that um, they were just. Too, you know, too many lights going on at the same time and nothing was very yeah. well controlled. Yeah. And so it, it kind of brings it back to just starting with one light, learning how to use one light and then and then expand from there. Once yeah. you can really use one light and you really have control over it and yeah. you know what you're doing and you know what effect you're getting, you know, Yeah. if you then think, okay, I want to add an edge light yeah. or, you know, whatever, or a yeah. fill
4: or whatever, else, yeah. That's fine. It is actually really easy, then, to build up on that. Absolutely. But- uh, I mean, for me, I, I do only use the one light. I now have two LED lamps, but I only use the one of them. It's a Godo SL60, um, I think it is. Uh, and I've got a 90-centimeter parabolic um, a softbox. So that now actually allows me to... Um, Really focus a light. I can feather with it, so I can get full on light. And so for for that, as you said, you know, use the one light, master it completely, so you don't have to think about it. Once you've done that, then you can introduce a second light source, whether that be through a, a silver slider reflector or, as you said, you know, like a rim light off at the back. Um, but yeah, one light. You only sort of really need one light to get a, an effective headshot. So. If people like to use three lights good luck to them but for me it's sort of it's, uh, it sort of drags me a bit uh, I, I haven't used three lights i have used two that was a bit cumbersome to get exactly how it wants um, so yeah for me i'm more than happy just to stick with the one light so mm-hmm. at the other you know the other thing you mentioned uh, and i thought was
0: um was a really awesome tip is you know you said when you look around you see a lot of american style headshots uh, that are usually three light kind of scenarios um then you know looking at a a one light type of headshot makes that one stick out from from the crowd and surely that's a that's really good thing to just differentiate your own work a little bit
4: i i think so um uh, i mean there's also plenty of um groups on Instagram and Facebook that you can join uh, there is very uh, there is um some very influential photographers in, coming out of the states uh, and their work is absolutely amazing uh but you know they will offer courses or lighting uh, techniques and uh, their work's really good but for me it's it's a bit too um corporate looking for me to use as to headshots and that's fair enough. But you know, if you take out of a group, take the first 10, 15 photographs, they'll all be taken by 10 or 15 different people, yet they all look very, very similar. And whether the light is good, it, that work doesn't really stand out from the person next to them. And again, that there is a place for that type of light. And I like it. It's just, it's just not my cup of tea. I, li- I like to have shadows. I like to have depth, so. And uh, and personality. I think that's, that's the I mean, other yeah. thing. Yeah. 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 I mean, because you said, you know, uh, a few years back, you were looking through Instagram. You saw a portrait. Like it. Who is it? Stockholm, Sean. The next day. Oh, fantastic. So there is, you do get a bit of a style um, that is recognizable when people do scroll through their fee, you know, I, for the, for, for good or for bad, you know, it is recognizable. Um, so yeah, the, the, the some of the headshots that actors do use of mine, uh, some of them actually do work in casting agencies and they'll get CVs in from actors and it'll be the same thing. They'll have a page, a CV, what they've done, then it'll be the picture. And without even looking at who the photographer is, they'll recognize it as one of my photographs and, um, it's good. It's good because people are actually managing to find work from the work that I give them. So I'm more than happy to stick with the one light <laughs> and create what I create. So I'm obviously doing something right. Another fantastic
0: guest of 2023 was SLR Hut's very own Pi Joseph. Pi spoke to me about how he built up his seven figure wedding photography business with some incredible business tips that are incredibly important for any photographer in any genre actually that's just incredible <laughs> again who writes these scripts check this
10: out we were approaching it completely different than an artist would we approached it from the standpoint of like i want to say like an artist has like a certain set of codes that they live by like to their own artwork and there's nothing wrong with that right it's it's like it's it's what drives them and, and most certainly you should stick to that if that's what you believe. But we didn't have that. Our code was keeping the clients happy. So we did basically whatever it took to make our clients happy and we made things simple and easy and, and we tried to reduce as much friction in this experience as possible. And so it made it really easy because we serve clients in a way that nobody was doing at that time. Um, I, I think that really changed how we were able to enter and, and make an impact within a few years.
0: So give me some specific examples of what you did differently uh, to the competition, for instance, at the time.
10: Well, like a a huge difference is just the sales process. Like the, the way that a typical photographer would sell their work is by talking about their work. Like, you know, you sit down, I'm going to show you my albums. I'm going to talk about what makes me different. And I'm going to talk about, you know this is the kind of cameras that I use. And, and I achieve this by, you know, photographing at a very wide aperture. And, and I do this to get this look, and this is how I light. And what makes me unique is the way that I light. Well, we take it from like a a business and sales standpoint, which is like, I'm only going to talk to you about photography. If you want to talk about photography, like we're going to, I'm going to sit you down and ask questions like, well, what are the things that you value in this experience? Why are you here? Like, what are you looking for? And so we designed a process around that and we called this the, the wave and the wave would be a process that we could then. So that kind of became my job is over the course of like, once we were two years into it, we had to start teaching our teams how to do things. And I'm like, I'm, I, I get kind of tired of saying the same thing over and over. So why don't I just create education around it? And that was kind of where SRland was born was from that process of creating our own education. So I'd make a process for sales so that anybody coming in could basically replicate what we were doing in our sales meetings, like the partners. Um, and that became the wave. But it's basically the wave is let's talk about what you value, not about my photography. It's let's make you the client, the hero, not me, your photographer. I'm, I'm Yoda. I'm the assistant. I'm the person that's going to help you to achieve whatever it is that you want to get. Um, as opposed to like, I'm the one I'm, I'm not Luke Skywalker. You are. So the way was about creating that process that someone else could replicate in a sales meeting.
0: So yeah, and then we just
10: did that across the board.
0: So you're basically the, the Obi Wan Kenobi to somebody else's Luke Skywalker.
10: Yeah, it's it's being comfortable like taking that that Obi Wan mentor role, that the guide role, as opposed to like I need everything to be about me. Artists have a tendency to kind of, um, and and, it, and it's unfortunate because like if the clients are hiring you for their wedding, it's their day. It's their, you know, it's their family shoot. It's their, whatever it is, it's for them. But a lot of times our egos kind of takes a, takes hold and it's kind of like, well, we make the day about us. You know, I need to have this and to be able to do my job. I, and, and you hear all these horror stories of, especially back then, I think photographers have gotten a lot better in general. Um, but back then we'd hear all these horror stories of like, photographers demanding a one hour break and, and they're not going to work if they don't get booed and they're And this kind of stuff still happens today, but like by and large, it's like, no, we bring our protein bars. Like we're good. Like if, if there's not an opportunity to sit down, we're fine. Like a, we're, we understand that we're paid to do a job and we're here to do that job. And, and so that approach kind of won clients over. And if you win clients over, um, I think you're good. Like we were and it, and it's funny too, because that ego thing, I think plays a big role in, um, you know, the, the aspect of being award-winning, like we were serving our clients long before we were award-winning and we only submitted to the awards that we could actually show off in front of our clients to say, Hey, look, you're making a good choice when you hire us. But the awards that we were going for is never like, let's, let's be we don't care about being known to other photographers. We care about anything that we can basically put in front of our clients to make them more comfortable. Um, but I think that's another trap that we fall into as we yeah. become photographers who are creating art for the sake of other photographers.
0: I think, you know, what you, what you said about um, the award winning aspect of it entering into awards, it does, from a marketing point of view, I think it, it works well because it's sort of, it plays on the um, authority bias. You know, Absolutely. You put yourself into the expert position, you know, and you the confirmation is the award-winning part of it so it works it works well for clients but i'm guessing it's like you said it doesn't really make any difference to the way that you operate per se
10: no and and that's only one aspect of that like you know kind of authority right is is the awards that you might receive another aspect is like just as good and in our our books a better award is a thank you card or a five-star review it's just a matter of like Do you actually feature those things in your business? Do you actually show those off? So, so we would show those things off. Like when you walk into our studios, there's a wall, you have to pass through this hallway. And on both sides of the hallway is just lined with thank you cards. So like that means a lot more from the standpoint of a client than you having award-winning on your website. Everybody can be an award-winning photographer, right? And so that's one piece of authority that you can use in the process. But it's one of many. And a lot of times we get lost in that, The ego gets us lost in those things as opposed to like, yeah, there's a huge impact, a much bigger impact of walking through a hallway of, you know, thank you cards, as opposed to just seeing five-star, or just seeing award-winning on your website.
0: So what would you say are like your, so your top three sort of mistakes that photographers make in business, um, if you had to think of like the, the three biggest mistakes you could think of?
10: Goodness top three mistakes so i would probably say number one the the highest mistake that i think a photographer can make that most will fall into and and including ourselves you know like like it's not to say that we didn't make these mistakes either getting into this it's just anytime you make the process about yourself right anytime you're talking about just like what we talked about in the sales process anytime you're talking about your features we call it feature selling So when you're selling the features of something, you're making a huge mistake because that's an opportunity that you have, that you have someone's time, you have their, their attention, and you can be talking about what they value and how you're going to deliver on the things that they value. And instead you're talking about why you do what you do. Um, so, so that's a huge mistake. And, And I would say the same thing carries through to any part of the process that isn't like client centric. Um, I would say the second big mistake that photographers make is, uh, they don't properly automate and treat their business like a business so like every tool that we've created sr loud was the first um offshoot business that we created it was all the education that we needed to train our own team we then made it available to others and we developed a platform and um you know it has over half a million visitors a month just on this platform and we have thousands of students around the world this was our second seven-figure business was teaching people how to create their first seven-figure business And, um, that I think comes from just having a mind to anything that I'm doing repeatedly, I'm going to create a system for. So for me, it was education, but then there's other things too, like, like, well, what about, you know, the email responses that you're getting often? Like, do we put together an FAQ? Do we reference people to the same blogs? Do we create automated email systems? Um, one of our newer uh software developments now is is ai development so we developed a a company called impossible things and now it's basically taking our our methodology of editing in lightroom and now it's fully ai adapted so it incorporates lighting conditions and camera profiles but it does all of your color grading for you so we're always looking for areas of the business that we can say can we step one is can we put in place a standard operating procedure or, or an sop step two could we automate this even further? Like, can we can we go beyond just having someone do this? Could we find a piece of software or even create something that would do this for us? So that would be the second piece is like kind of buying back your time from the business uh, through automation. And then maybe the 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 third piece is where your time goes. Um, I think artists in general, time management is not one of our greatest skills, and and oftentimes like you'll find that a lot of artists will actually have ADHD. So I have ADHD as well. And it's it's both kind of a superpower and it's also kind of a something that that can hold us back, right? In terms of scheduling and, and staying on task, it can be difficult, but once you're on task, it can become kind of the superpower because you get a focus like nobody else's business. But the key to that is like really good time management using like things like a Pomodoro, tracking your time. I'm gonna put time here and and kind of working around all the things where we're naturally weak um, I, I would say is the the other big factor, and treating it like like just because you can work from home, just because this is your business, doesn't mean that it's not something that you should treat seriously. Like you should put forty plus hours a week into this, you know, and and be serious about the business.
0: And last but not least, and again, this is not in any particular order. I managed to get together with one of the biggest names in the wedding industry, Jerry Giordis, and he gave me some fantastic tips for anyone starting out in wedding photography today. I think there's a theme developing check this
11: out. I would focus on the business more than I would the photography, because at the end of the day, if you're starting a wedding business, that means you're capable of producing a job rain, hail or shine in a consistent manner. doesn't have to be incredible or groundbreaking, just needs to be consistent. Um, and to be consistent, you need repetition experience and practice. And, um, that, you can't underestimate that. I, I remember meeting a photographer and said, Jerry, I've been photographing for th- weddings for three years. I'm not getting any better. And I said, well, how many weddings have you shot? He said, 21. And I said, you've been photographing for three weeks. He said, what do you mean? It's three years. I said, no, you've purely photographically been photographing for three weeks. And I go, do you practice on a non-paying gig? And he says, what do you mean practice? Said, you know, I've got a day job. I'm like, well, Well, I don't care whether you've got a day job or not. Do you practice your craft? He goes, well, you know, what I'm shooting. I said, well, if Djokovic practiced tennis only at a Grand Slam event, would he have won 23 Grand Slams at the moment? Probably not. Almost certainly not. Like professional athletes who are at the top of their game practice every day or at least work out or do something for their business. So I think too many people judge what they're going to charge based upon what they're good at, as in I'll only charge X amount when I feel I'm good enough. But because you get incrementally better photographically, you'll never see a massive change. So then your confidence level will never really reach what you want to charge depending on your mindset. So, you know, I say to people, you know, consider yourself a business person in photography rather than a photographer in business. And also like ask yourself the question, are you working on your business or in your business? It's two very different things. You know, in your business, that's why I've never done my own Photoshop. Why would I do something that anyone can do? What I I can do is photograph the way I do. I can relate to people the way I do. I sell the way I do. So there's things that I only do. And if I can get someone to do any like things that anyone can do, I'm going to pass that up. I'm not worried about what it costs me. Because the hours now that I have free to go and get the the better work or maximize my sales or redo my branding marketing or working on vendor relationships will be so much more fruitful. So there's 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 many different ways that I can f- structure that answer because it depends on if you're serious about business or if you're serious about weddings. Probably my people ask me what regret do I have? And I have very few in my career. The only regret that I have is I wish I was exposed to more photographers early in my career as in i had the ability to hold their camera bags or there's workshops like i do my my ultimate experience that i do for my for for photographers is a five-day workshop i I don't think there's anyone in the world that does a five-day workshop a single person all day every day and can cover weddings and portraits pretty much a university degree in one week i can't think of anyone else and i humbly say that i'm just i'm just more proud of it than anything and i say If it's not me, someone else, but the shortcut to success, if you read any business book in the world, it will say, find a mentor, find someone that's traveled down the road before you and learn from them. And uh, because you just have a shortcut, you fast track your success by knowing what to do, what not to do, understanding the complexities and intricacies of things that they wouldn't even thought of. What's your administrative workflow? What's your production workflow? What happens if you do get 20 inquiries this week? Could you handle it? Do you have a price list that's conducive of making money? Is it, are you giving too much away? Are you basing your prices on what anyone else is doing? And and so on and so forth. So repetition experience and practice will always be your best teacher. And then your business, you just have to treat it like a business. You, you, you know, it's not that you're creative and you can't, you know, be both. I am very left and right brained. I just learn to switch off and on depending on what I need at the time. Um, and yeah. That's. I mean, that's. There's a lot more to it than that, but that's the, the quick answer. <laughs> Even though it was long. <laughs> so w- within that, what do you think of so the? most commonly made mistakes that you see uh, wedding photographers make. Lack of confidence is the biggest one, and that is result of l- lack of repetition, experience, and practice. So they go in not really knowing what to do, or or they let a, a coordinator dictate the whole day. They don't sort of be assertive enough to establish the rules of engagement as in this is if like i'll I'll often say if i have any chance of not only meeting your expectations but exceeding them then i need this time i'm not like it's like a going to a a surgeon for an operation you're not gonna you know you're not gonna go there and oh you need to get this mole removed um and he'll say it'll take two hours and this recovery whatever and you say no half an hour like we're professionals, we need to tell clients, this is exactly what we need to produce what you expect. Therefore, you need to be ready at this time before the ceremony and so on and so forth. So over the years, you sort of work out, when most things go wrong, it's usually our fault as photographers. So so where they go wrong is lack of confidence, obviously lack of experience and repetition of practice, not treating a business like a business. And most people will say, I wanna be a professional photographer, so I'll start my own business. And that's the biggest mistake you've made because you're not treating it like a business. You're just floundering. You're like, let me, you know, a friend of mine has asked me to do their wedding. All right, I I'll, I think 500 bucks is good enough. Let me just charge that or let me do nothing. And then you sort of just, you know, every so often you chip away at something that you think you should do or people are, are posting a photograph a day or two days on, on Instagram and then thinking that that's marketing. Um, there are so many mistakes that people make. It's just being that there's no proactivity. Everyone wastes time on social media. Like, if people looked at the time they spent on social media and they said, rather than those five hours per day on social media that make me feel intimidated, make me feel like I'm not good enough, looking at everyone's best work, best photo, best meal, best holiday, judging yourself to somebody else, rather than wasting that time and making it literally fruitful get those, spend half an hour on social media, see what your friends are up to, your family, whatever, just, you know, whatever. Uh, and then spend four hours uh, that you used to do of that practicing and working on your marketing, working on your reinvention, working on your branding, your website, your, you know, your, your offerings and, and so on and so forth. So, you know, there, there's so many things to it, but that's the, the brief again, but long answer.
0: <laughs> I think you, you've hit the nail on the head there. Um, it's I think it's, it's, probably true to say that in creative fields like photography like music for example music is actually a very very good parallel to that you know the vast majority of musicians come at being a musician from 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 a creative angle you know um but that doesn't make them in any way shape or form experienced in the the art of turning the craft into a business which is why Which is why, you know, the vast majority of, of musicians are probably, you know, living a fairly, fairly
11: breathless no, life. I mean, they're broke, yeah. I mean, yeah. They're, they're, their biggest genius is their biggest curse. Is their, and, and it's the same with us, because we're all creatives. The, your biggest genius will always be your biggest flaw. What makes people or photography great uh, is your empathy and your sensitivity. You're a sensitive artist. You love people. You photograph them. Therefore, you just want to give everything away. Whereas that's so much disrespect for them your clients and for us and let me explain that for me i love my family i love my wife i love my 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 babies so i'm like well what how much will you pay me to take my attention away from my family that's that's like the first and foremost question i ask myself what will buy my attention to you because it's not going to be on my family if it's if it's on you And it doesn't mean if this job takes half an hour, you're not paying for the half an hour. You're paying for the 30 years it took me to learn what I'm going to do for you in half an hour. Um, You know, so the the, the fact is that, you know, if you love what you do and there's plenty of people out there that will take advantage of it. I know so many people who photograph celebrities and they make almost zero money, sometimes for the pure just – Hey, this is the, you know, you should be privileged to photograph so-and-so's wedding or so-and-so's shoot or the red carpet. And they make nothing. And I'm like, who do you love more? A stranger that you watch in movies or your wife or your husband that's begging for your attention? You know, so it's, it's a tough one. We've got to, we've got to balance what makes us great, but it, it can also be the death of us, you know.
0: And there you have it folks, a whirlwind journey through the best moments of the Camera Shake podcast in 2023. What a year it has been, filled with incredible stories, insights, and unforgettable experiences. I hope you've enjoyed the stroll-down memory lane as much as I have. Each episode, each guest, and each conversation has been a unique adventure, and I'm grateful to have shared it with all of you. Thank you for your continued support, for being part of this fantastic community, and for making the Camera Shake podcast what it is. As we bid farewell to 2023... I'm already buzzing with excitement for what lies ahead in 2024. There's a lot more to explore, to learn, and capture together. So stay tuned, stay inspired, and keep that shutter clicking. Remember, the magic happens not just behind the lens, but in the stories we share and the connections we make. Until next time, this is me, Kirsten Nutz, signing off for the Camera Shake Podcast. Wishing you all a wonderful end to the year, and may your 2024 be filled with endless creativity and stunning captures. Oh, and before I forget, there's a YouTube Live happening this Saturday, 30th of December at 7pm GMT. That's 8pm for you Europeans out there, or 2pm East Coast and 11am Pacific Time. Come and hang out with me on YouTube, Facebook or Instagram for this end-of-the-year bash. All the links are in the description, so yeah, I'll see you there.